Uh, if you have a Bible want to follow along, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 and then Psalm 82. It is good to be with you here today. Thank you for making the effort to come and visit our little section of the garden world. And I'm confident that you'll learn quite a bit. And for those things that you already know, I hope and pray that it's an encouragement, a reminder, a challenge as we seek to abolish the immediate abolition of abortion here in Virginia and the United States. So I've been tasked with uh, the topic of incrementalism. So I'm going to deal with the intellectual foundations of those two opposing things. And so we're going to get in kind of deep, but that's how things go. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, these are the words of God. It says, And do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. Psalm 82, verses 1 through 4, God takes his stand in the congregation of God. He, he judges in the midst of God's. How long will you judge unrighteously and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Justify the afflicted and destitute. Protect the poor and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. In Proverbs 17, verse 15, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them are alike an abomination to Yahweh. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father and God, we've gathered here today to look to your word. We are a people of unclean lips, and we live in the midst of a nation with unclean lips and blood on her hands. Father, I ask and pray as we look to your word that we would be challenged by its impeccable and expansive authority. We confess that we are in great need for your Holy Spirit to act and move in our presence. Forgive us, we pray, for the great crime and sin of abortion that has tainted our nation. Grant us revival and reformation, but only after you have granted us national repentance. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen. So the topic assigned is incrementalism. I'm titling this talk, Smash Mouth Immediatism, and the problem of incrementalism. If it's not obvious so far, this is going to be slightly polemical in nature. Now, I'm calling it smash mouth incrementalism or uh, immediatism because there's a certain quarter of Christen Christendom that likes to use the phrase smash mouth incrementalism, which in my view is just a fancy way of accepting defeat while running one's mouth. Out of all the tenets of abolitionism, this one seems to be the most misunderstood, sort of like the L in tulip. The debate surrounding immediatism and incrementalism is, of course, a debate that took place during the time of American chattel slavery. The terminology used during Wilberforce's time was gradualism. Should slavery be abolished immediately, or should history itself, as if history were its own entity capable of theoretical reflection, should, that, should we abolish it immediately, or should history itself be allowed to run its course and gradually work out the issue on its own? Wilberforce rightly stated that gradualism, what we're calling today incrementalism, distracts us from the real goal. That's what Wilberforce argued, and I'm going to explain in my own way how Wilberforce's argument can be understood and applied to our time, not only in the issue of abortion, but also more broadly. But I want to make sure we understand what we mean by these terms, because these terms may be new, perhaps, to some of you. First, immediatism. Let's define it. Immediatism is the conviction, based on the unflinching authority of God and his word, that evil itself, especially systematic evil in a culture, is to be abolished swiftly and without compromise, using biblical and ethical means to achieve a biblical and ethical end or goal. 
So all the way through, we want biblical conviction. That's what saturates this. Furthermore, the question that guides the immediatist is this. In our pursuit of establishing justice, does this particular act, legislation, or judicial determination honor Christ and his word first and foremost? That's the question. Does this particular act, legislation, or judicial determination, does that thing in and of itself honor Christ and his word first and foremost? Immediatism does not make room for partiality in any meaningful way because the Bible has no room for partiality. Over and over again, we're told that the Bible, uh, that God hates partiality. So it's as simple as Proverbs 18, verse 5. To show partiality to the wicked is not good, nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. So immediatism does not allow for actions, judgments, legislation, or judicial determinations that, as a consequence of their very existence, decree or legislate or ratify iniquity. Immediatism does not tolerate guilty people being acquitted, or innocent people being convicted. So immediatists take seriously what Scripture teaches us about the actions of men in a particular social context and how those actions line up with the self-sufficient, self-explanatory word revelation of God. So Bible first. Now, incrementalism or gradualism, on the other hand, is the conviction that based on human reason and moral-slash-ethical relativism, that evil itself does not have to be abolished swiftly and without compromise using biblical and ethical means to achieve biblical and ethical goals because sometimes we can't get our way. And therefore, we must, with smash-mouth irritation protruding from our lungs, take whatever we can get, while we try to get more and more each time. So the question that guides the incrementalist is this, in our pursuit of establishing justice, does this particular act, legislation, or judicial determination do some sort of good? Now, incrementalists make plenty of room for partiality because sometimes you just have to play along because nobody's perfect. We don't live in a perfect world, we're told. Incrementalists, they make plenty of room for actions, legislation, or judicial determinations that decree iniquity because, well, the world is entangled in sin, and therefore sometimes you have to set aside those deeply held convictions to play the long game, to, quote, run all the plays. And finally, incrementalists tolerate guilty people being acquitted and innocent people being convicted because, well, man's law, it would seem, would make much more sense to us than God's law in this particular situation. So not Bible first, pragmatism first. Now, when dealing with incrementalists like the pro-life industry, the most foundational question we can ask is this. What should drive human activity in the world? What should drive human activity in the world? Bible or pragmatism? Those are the options, right? Now, this applies to any conversation about social or political or ethical theory. And we only have two options. Scripture just gives us two basic options. We have the option of humanism with its God reason, or Christianity with the self-contained absolute triune Godhead, who is the final reference point for all predication, all reasoning, and all establishment of justice and righteousness. So we want Bible, not pragmatism. 
That's the smash mouth immediatist way. Scripture, not man. Faith, not unbelief. So let's consider some of our texts here. The Bible tells us often that God hates sin, and this is because God is holy, holy, holy. The Bible also commands us to be holy like God. Therefore, all of life is to be apprehended by the authority of the Bible, soaked in the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and then set forth in the world based upon the covenantal law standard we have in Scripture. Now, the difficulty here is pietistic Christians isolate these things and they see, as a result of those presuppositions, they see the call to holiness as being personal and only personal. And yet, holiness has a receptive aspect and also a responsive aspect. Meaning, we receive the holiness of God in Christ, thanks be to the Holy Spirit, amen, who grants to us the benefits of Christ's kingdom, but we also proactively function in a response to it in all realms of society, in all of the law structures of creation, in order to see to it that the claims of Jesus Christ are made known, be it as individuals, as families, as churches, as cultures, and so on. In other words, holiness is to be received, but like a seed, it's supposed to grow and flourish out there in the world, starting with you and in your families and in your churches and so on. So holiness requires practice. Now, Paul urges us in Ephesians 5.11, he says, And do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. Previously, he says that we were children of darkness, but now we're in the light. So we are to put holiness into practice. We're supposed to be learning what ple pleases the Lord and then and function that way. And part of this task is, one, not participating in the evil, right, as defined by God, and then two, actively exposing the evil. So it's not enough to just not get an abortion. That's only step one. Step two must be present. Expose the abortion holocaust cultivate families, and so on and so forth. Now, the verb expose is actually a word that is used to speak of shame or disgrace or con to convict someone. In other words, we're supposed to prove someone wrong so as to bring shame to them. Now, shame is a grace that only the gospel can heal, absolutely, but we are called to contend, we are called to refute, and we are called to confute the evil. And this requires human action from Christians. It requires action on our part. Now, in Psalm 82, we have this lamentation from Asaph. Here, as is the case elsewhere in Scripture, we learn that God stands in the midst of the congregation. He's in the midst of his people. Jesus standing at the lampstands of the church and so on. He's there, and Jesus, is, of course, judging appropriately. But Asaph sees a problem here in Psalm 82. Uh, why aren't God's people judging appropriately? Asaph cries out in verse 2, How long will you judge unrighteously and show partiality to the wicked? I mean, could we just quote that in our churches day in and day out <laughs> until we get the repentance from, from God? Instead of absolving the guilty and, and showing favoritism and partiality, we're supposed to, quote verse 3 and 4, give justice to the poor and the orphan. Justify the afflicted and destitute. Protect the poor and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. That's my favorite part. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. 
So if we're not seeking the immediate and total abolition of abortion, protecting the poor and needy, and if we're not delivering them out of the hand of the wicked, but instead compromising by, by allowing for some form of wickedness to perpetuate in those actions and legislations and judicial uh, determinations, if we're doing that, then we are quite simply working against God. Friends, the pro-life industry has been working against God. So the policy itself, is it, is it just? Is it righteous? Is it unrighteous? See, in God's economy, it can only be one of those things. Listen, misguided Christians, inconsistent Christians, they're the ones who are keeping abortion legal. They're the ones keeping abortion legal in America. They are showing doctrinal and practical partiality. Now, minimalism is great for graphic design, but it's a terrible thing for the task of doing biblical theology in the world. Proverbs 17, verse 15 is clear. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike, are an abomination to Yahweh. So woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Woe to the nation who tears apart children limb from limb inside and outside the womb. Woe to the church of God for condemning the righteous and vulnerable while justifying the wickedness of mothers and fathers who send their own boys and girls off to be dismembered. Woe to them. They're not victims. They're perpetrators. And woe to the church for allowing and perpetuating the bloodshed. Both, Scripture says, are an abomination to Yahweh. In fact, James chapter 2, verse 5 calls partiality a sin may God grant us repentance. Now I want to zoom out for a bit and explain why incrementalism is a problem and why smash-mouth immediatism is the only actual biblically consistent strategy. Now it goes without saying that we are living in trying times, right? Grotesque evil plagues our public square, the, the, the fruit of critical theory, the, the fruit of all of this nonsense and, and humanist-driven stuff is plaguing the public square, and the church itself has been sorely lacking and mysteriously absent. We have demons on the left whose bloodlust is spilling over into the streets. We have apathetic Christians uh, immersed in unbelief on the right whose moral compass is broken because they're trying to view this issue through the lens of humanism as opposed to biblical law. And humanism itself is actually the de facto religion of the day. We're, we're dealing with not just political issues, we're dealing with religious issues, religious issues underneath all of it. Humanism is the de facto religion of our day. That's what we're up against. Uh, Groen Van Prinster, he was the forerunner to Abraham Kuyper. He said that revolution is unbelief applied to politics. And he's absolutely correct. Right, right now, America is and has been advancing for a while now a new revolution of political and social theory, one that's built on reason. Humanism's God. Rushdoony said it best in his foreword to Hebden Taylor's 1967 booklet called The New Legality. And in it, Rushdoony, he decries the United Nations and their formal establishment of humanism as the official religion. And he writes, quote, Humanism is an intolerant and exclusive religion. No creedal expression of religion is permitted other than humanism. 
Other religions can exist only if they become humanistic, only, for example, if Christianity divests itself of its biblical faith and becomes a vehicle for humanism. We are in the midst of a worldwide humanistic legal revolution, which is even more radical than the bloody revolutions of humanism, end quote. Listen, guys, that was written in 1967, before Roe. And, he, and Rush Dooney was, was absolutely right. Beneath the crisis of abortion and the crisis of the church's failure to respond biblically is the crisis of humanist political theory. The Christian foundations established by the Puritans have eroded away, which is why America is right now slipping further and further off the cliff. And the question we must, must ask when we're dealing with the problem of in incrementalism that's plaguing the abortion discussion right now in our nation with the pro-life industry, the question is this, who or what is the source of law? <laughs> That's a, something Rushton wrote in the very early introduction of his Institutes of Biblical Law. Who, who or what is the source of the law? Because whoever that is, that's the God of that society. So is it con the contract law of, of Hobbes and Locke? Or is it God? And that's a basic question, right? Isaiah says that Yahweh is the lawgiver. But historic liberalism, again, as a political theory, has suggested that man's reason is the highest law. So is the king law or the law the king? This is all what's happening underneath this. The battle between immediatism and incrementalism is a battle between humanist philosophy and reformational philosophy. For example, gradualism is fueled by what's called an imminence philosophy. That's the assumption that man's reason takes priority over God's ethics. And we, we simply think that we know better. We think we know better. In this case, man's legislative efforts go on unencumbered by God's law word because, well, they're not, they're not hearing about it from the pulpit, so why would, they, why would they refer to that? And, of course, Christians idly stand by. But what is the result? What is the result of this thinking? There is no law hanging over the heads of state. They can do what they want. They are the law. In the Christian program, though, God is what we call, he is the thesis. He is the thesis, and that which is in rebellion to him is the antithesis, the antithesis. And this means that the ultimate antithesis, this struggle in history that God is victoriously won in Christ of God versus sin, that is a religious discussion. It's religious in nature. Listen, don't leave here with the wrong uh, view on this issue, but religion, all of life is religion. All of life is religion. H. Evan Runner said, said as much. The crisis that we face today will only be resolved when enough people repent for abdicating their social responsibility and repent for giving the cultural and economic and political spheres over to humanism and its God reason. So we must stop acting as though man were the lawgiver. When we run this bill in Virginia, there is no like, oh, pretty please. It's a demand from the courts of heaven. Man is not the thesis. God is the thesis. The task of our church, the task of the church then, we are to publish 
our confession as a means of positivizing the law of God and the norms that come with it for all of faith, for all of culture, for all of time. And that takes place in history, we know, as God predestines and is sovereign over history. As, and while we're doing that, we're, we're laboring for this immediate, immediate, uncompromising, no partiality justice, and we know that God is the one who must establish it. So we have a temporal task. Many people today just, they're squandering their lives. They're squandering their lives. We have a temporal task here in the here and now, one that needs to be made clear in the here and now, which means we cannot afford, we cannot afford to be ambiguous about what God demands from men. So no, we don't run all the plays like a heartbeat bill. You know, pick your sport, any sport. Aren't some plays illegal? Isn't God the owner of the playbook and the rule book? Isn't he the referee? Aren't some plays simply off limits because they violate the inviolable God? We don't run all the plays. We run God's plays. Listen, any social theory and subsequent formulation of juridical boundaries that, that does not consider the law of God, that does not consider the immediacy of justice, anything that does not consider those things is inherently flawed, it is humanistic, and it is thus incrementalist. And this is because, according to uh, the, the Dutch, he was a brother-in-law of Hermann Duiver, Dirk, uh, Dirk Vollenhoven, he said that there is structure and direction in God's law. There is structure to to God's law, but there is direction to it as well. That is, there, there's structure for all of the sciences in the world, right? They're, they're inescapably consistent. They're unchanging. They're ineradicable. We can't mess with the fact that certain things just are because God built them into his creation. But then there's direction to that law as well. Namely, the law itself must conform to God. It must conform to God and his standards because it is his law. When we try to, quote, run all the plays and do half measures, what we're saying is the direction of God's law is inconsequential. If, if man mendaciously or deceptively pollutes God's law or tries to manipulate it, or he's attempting to change the direction of it, it goes from honoring God to dishonoring God. Yes. And God hates it. Philosophically speaking, again, dealing with some of the intellectual foundations here, we can conclude this. All theoretical thought, when you start to go from just experiencing the world to thinking deeply about the world, all theoretical thought that expresses itself in society always requires pre-theoretical or supra-theoretical faith commitments. Let me say it a different way. That is, all men walk on this earth with faith commitments that they rarely consider. Even the unbeliever, right? I mean, question, dear Christian and pro-lifer, what are you in your pursuit of justice for your neighbor demonstrating in your tactics? What are you demonstrating in your tactics? What are you saying? What faith commitments are you revealing in those tactics? Because if you're an incrementalist, you are revealing that God's law is secondary to man's reason. What, what do the tactics that you choose to deploy say about the structure and direction of God's standards? There's no neutrality. 
Either the action, the legislation, or the judicial determination is directed towards God in obedience to God, or it is not. Which brings us to the ever-so-pressing issue of the state. <laughs> I don't even like that word. What is the job of the state? Well, it depends on which paradigm you're working from. For the Christians, there's a jural aspect of the civil magistracy that says that its power is to punish and levy justice. I mean, that's God's law. But for the humanist who sees the collective group as usurping any sort of individuality, the state's jural aspect encroaches on everything else. So we are seeing like <laughs> every day more and more stuff being fed to the federal beast. <laughs> it encroaches on everything, which means the will of the people, quote, the will of the people, i.e. humanism, becomes the tyranny of the majority, and thus the state in this humanistic paradigm becomes the all-encompassing power state which yields to no one. So for the Christian, the, the state is not in a position to yield to, quote, no one. <laughs> it's laughable. Liberal democracy is not the biblical program. The will of the people means nothing on its own autonomous volition. The will of God means everything. And that is what drives Christian action in the world. That's what should drive Christian action in the world. If you care about God's will more than man's will, then you will be an immediatist, not an incrementalist. Incrementalism, then, succumbs to this temptation to believe that the highest authority, as it pertains to justice and righteousness, is man rather than God. That's what incrementalism does. Incrementalists, they interpret the totality of existence solely in terms of imminence, what's in front of us at the moment, rather than the law of God, which transcends and supersedes that moment and therefore speaks authoritatively to it. Now, as we land this plane, the wind is picking up. We need to deal specifically with the problem of gradualism and incrementalism in relationship to the church and this erroneous doctrine. First, the precepts that we establish and the subsequent penalties that are attached to them tells us what we value. Tells us what we value. The law of God is a reflection of God just like the laws of man are a reflection of men. The act, the legislation, the, or the judicial determination in that moment tells us what we value. 50 years of incremental immoral legislation and we're still wandering around in the wilderness with dead babies left in the church's wake. So what do we value? What are we saying to the world that we value? When we, when we put together a half-measure bill, what do we value? Not children, not families, not God. Not the authority of God's word. Second, the precepts and laws that are established tell us what we believe. Not just what we value, but what we believe. Incremental pro-life bills tell the world that the church thinks it's okay to murder a baby if, one, you can check the ultrasound first, two, you can't find his or her heartbeat, oh shucks, at least we tried, three, if the child was conceived in a certain context, four, if she, he or she is X amount of weeks, weeks old, and five, if, if you sign certain paperwork, then you can kill your child. Listen to this. In 2021, Texas, for example, had 20,336 abortions from May through August. Okay? Last year. 
The heartbeat act took effect September 1st. From September through December, the rest of the year last year, Texas had 9,473 abortions. And you know what pro-lifers were doing? The Texas Heartbeat Act is saving lives. What about the 9K? See, incrementalism is nothing but showmanship. It's the illusion that confessing Christians are busy doing justice when in fact they are delaying justice. The self-aggrandizement that comes from the pro-life industry is reprehensible. Saving lives, you've condemned 10,000 little boys and girls to death. You're not saving lives. You had an option. We had HB 948 back in 2017 in Texas. Couldn't pass it because they're pro-life, Republican, conservative Christians. And you've seen it now for the past five years, over and over and over again. Who's stopping it? The church, the people of God, at least the external people of God. How can you even call a heartbeat bill a victory, especially when you believe in the supremacy of God's law? That legislative act, it doesn't comport with the Scripture's condemnation of partiality. Third and finally, the precepts and laws that are established preaches to the world what the church says about justice. Not just what we value, not just what we believe, but what we think of justice. And speaking favorably of these incremental laws, the church has shown the world that, listen, this is how you murder babies. That's the message that's being communicated. You, you can do a song and dance all you want to distract from that reality, but that's what it is. Incrementalism is showing the world how to murder boys and girls in the womb. That's the discipleship program that we're working with, and God absolutely hates it. The church is supposed to be teaching the world what righteousness and justice is all about. How can the nations stream to the people of God, per Isaiah 2, when we don't have it correct? They're not streaming to the church for answers. Why would they? We're giving them the answers they want. What are we communicating to the world about what we believe about justice? We're supposed to teach the nations how to obey God. What are we teaching the nations if we won't be consistent in our ethics? When we won't be consistent on our way to a righteous goal or outcome? See, God blesses faithfulness to his law word no matter the social context. Doesn't matter if you're in Babylon because you've been hauled off in one of the three deportations. He doesn't bless humanistic-driven schemes. There is no such thing as us getting out of covenantal judgment through continued transgression. We must take the axe to the root. Urgency, not gradualism. The prophets of old, they would deliver their message uncompromisingly and without delay. Gradualism, though, on the other hand, is half-hearted repentance. Eventually, we'll get around to doing the right thing. Gradualism is delayed repentance, which means that it's delayed obedience as well. Immediatism says that repentance must be urgent because the judgment of God is that serious. Delayed repentance will invariably lead to compromise. And the road to repentance, friends, it's, it's, there's no rest stops there. There's no rest stops. It's point A to point B. It's that simple. You don't get off that train. There's no caveats. There's no elevation of man's rationalistic efforts. No, it's repentance. Deep and I mean, the kind where you go home on your knees and you cry before the Lord, 
for a long time, that type of repentance, not like, oh yeah, I'm sorry, but I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Have we gotten to the place where the majority of Christians are okay with half measures that still allow for the murder of preborn, preborn boys and girls? Listen, it is humanism. It's obtuse humanism. It's the secularization of the church that we are fighting today. When the church retreats, the world advances, period. And many Christians, I'm so sick of this, many Christians act like the gates of the church will not stand against the fury of hell. When the church compromises and shows partiality, the world tears children apart. Man aborts man because man wants to abort history. And Christians must interpose to stop it with consistency, with faithfulness, with obedience, the elevation of God, not man. Any excuse that leftists and or pro-lifers come up with to justify treating this as something other than the murder that it is, it's doomed in the courts of heaven. The issue is over in the courts of heaven. There is no ambiguity between the triune Godhead that we serve. Pro-lifers and incrementalists, they practice what's called an epistemological pluralism, meaning that there's this belief that knowledge of self has its origin in the self, rather than a knowledge of God having knowledge of self having its origins in the knowledge and revelation of God. When we let that go, this goes on unchallenged by the people of God, and injustice perpetuates society. And like true injustice. Not the nonsense that, you know, when buildings are burned down and we don't want merely to abolish abortion. We want Christ to be honored and revered. I love what Hannah said there. You can't. It's a gospel issue, so it requires gospel solutions. So we want the whole status tree to come down. Rather than being smash-mouth incrementalists, let's, let's get consistent by being smash-mouth immediatists who see the status tree for what it is. And we want to fear God more than any man or any political group or any government bureaucrat. Pro-lifeism must be abolished because it is humanist to the core. Its practice and tactics are driven not by a biblical ground motive, but by pragmatism, fear of man, and selfish pride. Instead of obeying God, they defer to their abhorrent eminence philosophy and doctrines, which are driven by everything but ethics and biblical justice. So don't call yourself pro-life when life isn't actually your aim, nor is it your tactic. Abandon pro-lifeism, adopt abolitionism, and make pro-lifeism like gradualism and abortion must be abolished. And I'm going to end with this quote from Wilberforce. Wilberforce said, I find it necessary to affirm that the problems we face nationally and internationally are a direct result of the decline of faith and morality in our nation. My only hope of a prosperous future for this country rests not on the size and firepower of our military, nor on the wisdom of its leaders, nor on the spirit of her people, but only on the love and obedience of the people who name themselves after Christ, that their prayers might be heard, and for the sake of these, God might look upon us with favor. Amen and amen.